our passage this morning includes the most famous passage in Micah. It includes the words that are um, often quoted. In fact, if you were to go to the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and go into the large section of their library that is devoted to religious works, you know, under the Dewey Decimal System, or actually the Library of Congress system, you would find these words on the wall. Okay. They're the words that are in here in verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so here is a summary. What does God expect? What does God require? What is the proper response of the people of God to what God has done? But as we've reiterated multiple times across Micah, and honestly, I think we do this anywhere we are in the scriptures, context matters. These words on a plaque in the Library of Congress are a significant thing. We're on a t-shirt or for you to memorize and recite. But in their context, they take on their full meaning. Sometimes the way we treat the Bible is like a, a, a poorly thought out autopsy. And we try and study a stomach that we've removed from a body. And we, we take it apart and we think about it. But a stomach is part of a larger system of organs. And if you want to understand what the stomach does, you have to know how it relates to the intestine that follows it and the esophagus before it. And you have to know that some of the things that run through it are blood vessels, and those are tied into a completely other system, right? The context creates meaning. And so what is significant about our passage here is how verses 1 through 7 lead up to and inform and prepare us for verse 8. And so with that in mind, I'd like to read all eight verses together. We'll pray, and then we will talk further. Starting here in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Let's pray. Father, I pray for fresh ears this morning that even things that are old would be new again, and that things that are familiar would strike us with deeper impact. I pray that you would remove from us this morning things that may distract us, uh, and even places where we might be discouraged right now, and that would draw us away from what you want to speak to your church. We want to stand uh, with Jesus and with Moses' words in Deuteronomy and recognize that mankind, human beings, cannot live on bread alone, but need every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, including these words this morning. And finally, Lord, we pray for that same Holy Spirit that you have granted irrevocably to all who believe this morning to be our teacher and our guide as we open the word that he gave and spoke through the prophet Micah, for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
let me remind you again that there is a cycle or a pattern to the book of Micah. It starts with judgment and then goes to hope and returns to judgment and goes to hope. And so where we find ourselves now is in the third repetition of this cycle, beginning again with judgment. And appropriately, this judgment begins in the courtroom. Okay? And so what we have effectively in, uh, in Micah chapter 6 is a courtroom setting where God calls Israel to the dock to take the stand in their own defense and then calls as jury the hills of the earth. Okay. Notice the language in chapter 6, verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, if you read the prophets beginning in Isaiah, going all the way to Malachi, you will encounter courtroom settings regularly. In fact, scholars who study these things see that as a sub-genre or a literary feature that's consistent and has the same marks. And although there were differences between a Hebrew courtroom and an American one in our modern world, it's not hard for us to get the sense for what's going on here. And so what we see is he brings a charge against his own people. And then, like I said, he calls the mountains as juries. Now, why does he do that? I would suggest to you it's for two reasons. Um, one is because this is a cosmic courtroom. This is not about a local crime in a local court. It's not even a case for the Supreme Court. It's, uh, it's a case of cosmic significance, and so that requires a cosmic courtroom. And so he calls upon the mountains because of the scale of his charges. But there's another reason. He's going to go on and basically what he wants to say is, we made a deal, Israel. You came into covenant with me. I've been faithful to my side. You have been unfaithful to yours. Think of all of the Judge Judy cases, right? Where there's a contract and there's a plaintiff who comes and says, the defendant has not kept up their side of the deal. They haven't paid rent in months, or they were supposed to do this amount of work and it never got done, or they were supposed to take care of my animal and now my animal is dead, whatever it is. Effectively, God is bringing a charge and saying, you have not done what you were supposed to do. Now, what does that have to do with the mountains? Israel's history is a long one. And interestingly enough, if you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses sets up the covenant, and when he tells the people what's expected of them, he calls the mountains around them in Israel as witnesses to the covenant. In other words, he brings in those who were there at the signing of the contract. Okay. We know that documents can be forged. And that's why we usually have witnesses sign things like that or companies that stand in as a mediator for contracts or things like this. In this place, the same mountains that were there in the day that Israel became God's people are standing around Israel now and he says, hey, can you come back and remind Israel, right? That's the emphasis here. Mostly that's just imagery. Mostly that's just a picture. But sometimes pictures are significant, and that's especially the case here, because what do you expect after verse 2? Look again, it says, For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Okay, so the courtroom is set, and what does he ask them to do back in chapter 6, verse 1? Arise, plead your case. Okay, what happens here? The defendant takes the stand. That's what's supposed to happen. God says, what do you have to say for yourself, Israel? But that's not what happens next. Look at verse 3. Who's speaking in verse 3? Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Instead, it's as if God takes the stand and says, all right, you want to accuse me of sin? 
You want to say that I failed the contract? He puts him, his own self in the dock and says, all right, cross-examination time. Interrogate me. Show me what I've done wrong. Convict me in a court of law. And one of the things that I love about this maneuver is two things. One, you cannot read verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you without hearing God's heart? You see, when we focus on courtroom imagery and when we think of God as judge or God's justice or his judgment, we have a hard time keeping that together with the reality of God's love for humanity. And so here, he's calling out Israel for their sins, and he's talked extensively in the book of Micah about the consequences of that. There will be consequences. But that doesn't mean that he hates Israel. In fact, why he's so grieved is because he loves them so deeply. The second reason why this is significant is because it helps us to organize the relationship. And here's what I mean. When we get to what must I do, which is the second half of this passage beginning in 6, when Israel comes forward and goes, what do you want me to do? What do you expect of me? There is an underlying implication, if we started there, that Israel needs to initiate, that they need to hold up their side of the contract, that if they only do this, then God will do that. And what's in the God will do that category? God will protect them from their enemies. God will stop sending prophets to convict them. God will bless Israel so it can flourish. There's an idea here where they basically say, okay, God, what do I have to do to get you off my back? What do I have to do to get the things that I really want? You're the all-powerful, sovereign creator. You are the giver of all good things. What do I have to do to please you so that I can get in on some of that action? That's the idea that comes across. But by starting here and by God putting himself in the dock, what he does here is he reviews the things that God has done for Israel. Not as a response. He doesn't say, hey, when you were faithful to me, things were good. He goes back to the beginning and he says, how did you become my people? Notice what he says first there in verse 3. He says, how have I wearied you? Answer me. You know what I hear in that? I hear the frustration of someone who's working so hard to care for someone, and it comes off as if they're just an annoying part of life, right? How have I wearied you? Why is it a relationship with me is exhausting? That's the question he's asking. But there's a, there's a piece that's easy to miss here, um, and that's that the word wearied in Hebrew rhymes with the word in the next sentence when he says, for I brought. Okay, He says, you say that I've wearied you, but I brought you up out of Egypt. That's what he says in verse 4. He says, I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The evidence he presents here, is it the things that Israel has done or the things that he has done? Very clearly, it's the things that he has done. I brought you up. I redeemed you. I sent Moses and Aaron Aaron and Miriam, right? These are God's acts. Not only that, but they are God's initial acts. God didn't come to Israel, slaves in Egypt, and go, let me make you a deal. If you will keep my rules, and if you can do so for X amount of time, then I will save you. He just walks up to a people, and because of promises he made to their ancestors, says, I'm going to deliver you. Right? This is, this is the case. Any true theology that understands what the word God means will recognize that God initiates, and all we can do as human beings is respond. God initiates, and all we can do as human beings is respond. That's true in the big picture of just the fact that you're here. Okay? If God is the creator who gives life to all of us, then all you can do with your life is respond to that. You can't initiate. 
We don't start from nothing and then go, all right, I've heard there's this God guy out there. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to impress him, and then he's going to help me. The very fact that you live and breathe begins with a work of God, not your work. But here, Israel as a people begins on the same place, not with them supplying an application and saying, we would like you to consider us as your people. Not as prerequisites. Look, we've fulfilled all you ask of us, so now we ask that you take us as your people. But in the sovereign love and choice of God. And not only that, but when God found Israel, they were kind of in a pickle. They were slaves to a foreign power. And God says, I delivered you from that. In other words, he didn't just come in and counsel them and say, Let me give you some advice. It'd be really good if you weren't slaves. Here's how you can set yourself free. No, he broke the chains himself. And if you remember the story from the book of Exodus, he did it with powerful and miraculous happenings, right? What happened in Egypt wasn't an uprising or a revolution. It was a miracle. And although it involved people like Moses, Aaron, and Miriam... They were hand-chosen by God, empowered by God, instructed by God, led by God, orchestrated by God. God was the main character of the story of Exodus. And then notice what he continues on in verse 5. He says, O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. This is a little bit later in the story. Israel is out in the wilderness, and Balaam a pagan prophet who's in the business of cursing people, of calling down judgment from the gods, is hired by a local king who's real nervous about the millions of people he sees in the wilderness. And so he hires Balaam to curse Israel. And he says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. And he opens his mouth and out comes not cursing, but blessing. And not just once, But after multiple cases of frustration and weirdness, four times he tries this and fails to curse Israel. Is this because Israel isn't curseworthy? Is there something that Israel did? Incantations, they said, to set up some sort of spiritual boundary to protect themselves. Were they so perfect or righteous that God says, no, 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 I could never do that. No, this is just God's desiring to bless his people and he turns even curses to blessings. Now, notice this. This puts God in a unique camp because it means that the enemies of Israel can't succeed. And that's not because Israel is strong or powerful, but because God is for them. But he keeps going here, and notice what he says next. He says, What happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now, Basically, those two places, Shittim and Gilgal, are basically just opposite banks of the Jordan River. In other words, if you want to think of what happened at this place, you should think of the miraculous crossing of the River Jordan, right? Where the priests step into the water with the ark, and the water dries up, and all Israel enters into the land on dry land. But there's a greater significance than this. Because this follows, and it follows with a little and there, the story of Balaam. And here's how the end of the story of Balaam goes. Balaam comes back to Balak and he says, look, I can't curse them, but I can cause them problems. So here's what you should do. I want you to take your prostitute priestesses who engaged in sexual activity to please the gods of the Moabites, and I want you to set up a new franchise of that right on the edge of Israel. And I want you to draw the Jews into worshiping your God through sexual acts. And I promise you, that will displease the God of Israel. And it does. And so that happens at Shittim. Okay, so so let's put together the story here. Does Israel know anything about Balaam and Balak? It's not even on their radar. They're down in the valley doing their lives. Balaam and Balak are up on the cliffs, and yet God is watching out for them and turning cursings to blessings without them even knowing. 
And then they turn from the God who saved them from Egypt. They give themselves over to other gods and ways that don't honor God uh, in their sexuality. And yet he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't go, well, that was a wash. I guess I need to try another people. In fact, if you read the book of Numbers, you find the people of Israel are constantly failing God. Even when he first lays out the covenant, puts, you know, the words on the stones, the Ten Commandments, at the very moment they're down in the valley making a golden calf, having a giant orgy, rejecting the God who is trying to save them. And yet God faithfully brings them into the land of promise. In other words, the emphasis across this is that God has acted in his own power, not just initiating, but often responding to their failure with forgiveness and goodness and blessing. And so you read this story and then you get the question, how have I wearied you? And it's offensive in a completely different way, right? Wearied you? I love you. I saved you. I've been over backwards for you. I've forgiven you. I've showed up again. I've kept my side of the bargain even when you didn't keep yours. That is the God who is sitting right now giving his own personal testimony in the courtroom. Okay. Now, again, the big picture that I want you to get this morning because what we're talking about now that we've gotten into this category and all the way through verse 8 is worship. Worship is the proper and appropriate response to God. Okay? And the first thing we need to understand about worship is that it always falls into that category of response. You can't come into a relationship with God and sing some songs and make some sacrifices and go, there, now I've done things, so you must reward me. You can't come into it and say, I'm going to do these things so that God will do those things. It's always a response. Worship is always a response. Now, the people of Israel speak. God makes his personal case. He gives his own testimony. And now they speak. And notice what they ask in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Okay. What are they looking to do? They're looking to settle. They're saying, all right, how can we finish this court case? How big is the check that I need to write? All right, fine, God. What is it that you're expecting? Right? The tone is so off from what we just read. God says, how have I wearied you? And he lays out that he's redeemed them and saved them and loved them and cared for them and forgive them. And they pull out the checkbook and say, all right, what, how can we finish this right now? Now, what they say here, you know, and I would suggest to you that this is not the people of Israel speaking, obviously, but Micah pretending to be the people of Israel. That's what's going on here. And so what he does here is full of hyperbole and full of irony. It starts really normally, right? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? There is this sacrificial system of bringing offerings before God that goes all the way from the days of Exodus to the days of Micah, a regular and consistent practice, a, 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 you know, a centerpiece of Israel's worship of God. But notice verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? That's the hyperbole, right? Do we just need to offer more sheep? Do we just need to bring more oil? And then notice it says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now there's so much context underlying that that's easy to miss. Okay. The first is, there were other gods around the people of Israel that this was part of the practice. That to appease the gods, you killed your kids. Okay. Molech was this way. And so here, it betrays the fact 
that Israel doesn't recognize who God really is. They know how to please Molech, so maybe it will work for God. And we see this in the case of Israel. Some of the kings of Assyria who do just this, child sacrifice, to try and get God's attention. But there's another thing that underlies this, which is that they are willing to pay the price of their child if it will just get God off their backs. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you read this in the story of Micah, we already know that Micah's people, the people of Israel, are all for bribing judges. They've been criticized for it already. They're also all for the blood of the innocent. That's the great problem in Israel is that their oppression and injustice as the powerful take advantage of the weak. Just a few chapters ago, he accused them of being cannibals who devour the people of Israel, breaking apart their bones and cooking them in a stew. When you take that idea and then you put these words in this mouth, what do we hear? We hear them trying to buy off God. And in a way that doesn't really cost them that much. Because what is a thousand rams when you're making millions a day? Right? It reminds me of how frustrating it often is when there's a huge court case against some big company who knew what they were doing wrong was wrong and knew that it was going to bring harm and all that they get is a financial slap on the wrist and they just go on their way. Right? To us, it'd be a ton of money, but to a company of that size, it's nothing. They take you know, two points off the profit share for the, for the year and then they move on their way. That's the people of Israel here. That's their view of God. What they want to do is give God that which costs them very little. What they want to do is give God something that is totally ceremonial. In other words, what they don't do here is repent. Right? God calls them in a court case and he says, these are your crimes. And they basically say, what do we have to do to keep living the same life we're living and get you off our backs? That's the mentality. That's the focus. And again, at least in Hollywood and in our cultural storytelling, right, we can recognize this character, the powerful person who's willing to publicly make a portrayal or a display of setting things right so that they can keep perpetuating the evil that they're doing. But also recognize that the whole reason that Micah is walking through this whole thing is basically to say, why are you acting as if God is asking you for something new? Why are you acting as if God is asking for you, you for something really big? What does he say in verse 8? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. Told is past tense. He says, you already know. What I'm asking of you, God says, is not new, it's not novel, and it's not unreachable. It's the same thing that I've always asked. Now we have to deal with another context really quick. We've been talking for the last few weeks about, um, about how there's this tension in the idea of practices of justice, of seeking to set things right in our world, the one outside this church building, and doing it in the name of Jesus. And I shared with you that going back almost 150 years now is a, is a split in the American church between an emphasis on social justice and what's called the social gospel that says the church exists to do good in the world and had a tendency to redre uh, reject the teachings and the doctrines of scripture, the identity of Jesus, the need for salvation, the reality of sin and all these things. And then the reactionary camp that was so afraid of the social justice that they cut any sort of serving the world around them out and just said, our goal is to evangelize people and tell them about heaven. Okay. Because of that reason, this response in verse 8 can be a challenge because it can be a banner waved by the social gospel people who say, look, this is it. It doesn't say anything about preaching the gospel or anything. God's already told us we need to do justice. And it also becomes a, um, you know, something that gets stuck in the teeth of the other side who feel the need to explain away or course correct or, or set this aside somehow, okay? And so for that reason, I also, I think it's helpful for us to put ourselves in the shoes of Israel 
and go, wait, have we forgotten? In other words, he's, he's told you, O oh man, what is good. When? When did God tell us to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? And let's recognize first and foremost here that Micah is not quoting. He's not saying here, have you forgotten what it says in, you know, in Exodus chapter 10 and then just verbatim gives it? In fact, even the Jews themselves recognized that this was a summary, although they thought it was a very good one. Many rabbis in the generation before Jesus came onto the scene believed that this was the best summary in the Old Testament of the entire law of what was expected of Israel. Okay. But the question stands, when? When did you tell us to do these things, God? First, turn with me to Genesis 18. If you're familiar with the structure of your Bible, you know that Genesis 18 brings us to, to the life of Abraham, right? The beginning of the people of Israel. Abraham is the patriarch. He's the first in the family of the Jews, and through the miraculous provision of a son in Isaac comes his grandson, uh, uh, Jacob, and then the 12 tribes of Israel, right? This is where it all begins. And I want you to notice what God says here as he visits Abraham here in chapter 18, verse six, uh, 16, excuse me. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them and set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. He says, I'm raising up Abraham, and I'm going to make him a great nation so that they can, and it's the same phrase we find here in Micah, do justice. It's the purpose of Israel. It's God's plan for Israel. Let me show you another one from the book of Deuteronomy here in chapter 10. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Now, I want you to notice as we read this that this focuses not on who Israel is supposed to be, but who God is. We'll come back to that. But look at verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing, okay? In other words, God does justice. And then notice verse 19, love the sojourner therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, okay? Notice what he says here. He says, do justice because God does justice, or more importantly, do justice because God did justice on your behalf. Do you see that? He says, love the sojourners because God loved you when you were a sojourner. That's the implication. And so it's the same thing we saw in Micah, is it not? God sets them up and starts with, how did our relationship begin? What have I done with you? What have I done for you? And they say, well, we can give sacrifices and we can write the check. And he says, no, 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 no. I loved you when you were sojourners. Love the sojourner. I did justice in the midst of oppression. Do justice in the midst of oppression. And so what we see here is that this call to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with our God, which we'll come back to, is rooted in the character of God, one. He's the one who takes care of widows, 
who loves the sojourner. He's the one who brings about justice. And two, it's rooted in the actions of God on our behalf. Let me show it to you again. Let's move forward to one of Micah's contemporaries, the prophet Isaiah, and look at Isaiah chapter 1. Listen to how similar this is to what we read in the book of Micah. God says to the people of Israel in verse 12, when you come to appear before me, that means come to the temple, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hate. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, wash wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He says, look, you show up at all the high holidays, you come for Passover, you show up at Pentecost, you're there for the Feast of Tabernacles, You call special times of fastings, you offer your sacrifices, you raise your hands publicly and you pray, but I will not hear because your hands are full of blood and your hearts are full of iniquity and your lives are full of injustice. And he says, turn away from those things. Okay. One more. This one from the book of Amos chapter 5. If you can find Micah again, Amos is just a few books over to the left. Almost just like Isaiah, listen to the words here in chapter 5, verse 20. I hate I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I think this passage is especially helpful for us today because what Israel is struggling with in the book of Micah and here is with a narrow view of worship. How do you respond to the good things God has done? With sacrifices and offerings, with prayers, and notice here with singing, right? And he says, but all of that is invalidated if you don't do this other thing. All of that is insincere and fake and despised in God's eyes while injustice and unrighteousness is a part of our life. Okay. Now we can go back to Micah and now we can talk about worship. When we last left our definition of what worship is, we called it a response, and it always is. Take the songs that we sing. Where do we get the ideas and the language that we put in our mouths when we sing to God? They're all rooted in who he says he is, right? God says, I am just and holy and loving and good, and our songs sing, you are just and holy and loving and good. God says, I have saved you from your sins. And we say, you have saved us from our sins. Do you see that? It's always a response. Although the writing of worship music involves tremendous creativity, it's not creativity in truth. It's always not the creation of something new, but a response to something true. 
However, however, worship is a broader concept than just the noises we make with our instruments and the words we proclaim with our mouths. Or the tithe that you put in the tithe box. Or the good deeds that you do to get God off your back. The token, whatever it is, worship here is broader. And when he says, he's told you, O man, what is good, let me put it in a different language for you. God has already explained the proper response to what he's done. This is what I would suggest to you. That our worship services or our worship acts or our liturgy, you know, the things that we do that are symbolic in nature of who God is, the burning of incense, and even our public praying together, that all of these things are somewhat, somewhat like a sacrament. If you're not familiar with the word, the sacraments are the things that Jesus told us to do, the taking of communion and baptism. They're embodied, they're physical, they're coupled with words, they're public. But they're also a picture of a greater, bigger truth. And if that greater, bigger truth isn't there, the act itself is meaningless, if not offensive. You've probably heard pastors say it before, you've probably heard me say it before, Baptism doesn't save you. Going through the right ritual or the right process won't solve the issue. But baptism is still significant because it is a physical, embodied, memorable, time and history act that points to a deeper, greater, fuller spiritual reality. What I would suggest to you is in the thoughts of Micah and Isaiah and Moses and Deuteronomy and God himself, We worship with our mouths because we're called to worship with our whole lives, okay? It is just a representation so that we can say with our mouths what we live with our lives. That's why Micah calls foul here. It's not because he goes, sacrifices are gross and bloody. It's not because he says, God isn't interested in worship. You can worship him out in nature. Forget about going church. You can't take the prophets and hold them up as example of this kind of anti-institutional spirituality that is popular in our days. They're not interested in getting rid of the temple. They're interested in getting rid of the hypocrisy. Why is it that worship should be a whole response? It's because God didn't just love us in speaking truth or revealing who he is. Take it back to those two ideas again. What did we see in Deuteronomy? Why were they to love the sojourner? Two reasons. One, because God loves the sojourner. And two, because they were sojourners and God loved them and brought them out of it, right? Okay, so it is both a reflection of who God is, and it is a response to what God has done for you. We see the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. It says, let us, little children, love one another, for God has loved us, and so let us imitate our heavenly Father. Imitation is a major term and concept in the New Testament. What does it look like to follow Jesus? To walk in his steps. What does it look like to receive what God has done for you? It means to do the things that God does. In fact, we only went back to Genesis 18. He has told you, a man, what is good, but we could have gone back further. We could have gone back to Genesis chapter 1. Because what do we learn about human beings in Genesis chapter 1? That we were created in the image of God. That doesn't just mean God thinks so we can think, or God creates so we can create. It means that we were created to reflect who God is right here on earth. Okay. The purpose of life is worship. The purpose of human life is to reflect God's character. But when we add the idea of response, it moves beyond reflection. Right, imitation is someone you can do with a total stranger. You can study a video online of how somebody walks or how somebody talks or how they go about their rhythms of life. You can read a book that says, here's the way that I manage my big business and you can manage your business in the same way. That's imitation. 
but response or reciprocal imitation is different. It's the difference between saying, that man is a loving father, I want to be like him, and saying, my father loved me in this way, I want to love like him. You see the difference between those two things? Reciprocal reflection is also a part of worship. So it's not just we're supposed to do the things that God does because they're godly, it's we are to do the things that God has done for us, for others. Okay, it is responsive. And so let's go through, what does this look like? How do we properly respond to God? What does it look like to worship God, not just with our mouths or with our money, but with our very lives? Look again at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks as we've gone through Micah, we've gotten a lot of um, content to help us understand what it means here when it says do justice. In fact, even in our reading today from those cross-references, you saw things that are clearly in that category, to defend the widow who is defenseless, right? It's, it's expressed in the way that you take care of foreigners and refugees. It's manifest in how we respond to imbalances of power. It's manifest in taking care of the needs of the needy around us. All of these things, okay? Do justice, I think, is the easy one on the list. The other two have a tendency to be misunderstood or lost in layers of sentimentality. And so I want to spend a little bit more time with them. What does it mean to love kindness? Okay. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is that doing justice is action-oriented, but loving kindness is identity-oriented. Doing justice is the stuff you do. Loving kindness has to do with who you are, what you value, what you, you know, what you enjoy, what's important to you. But it's that word kindness that gets lost. This is the Hebrew word hesed, maybe the most important term in all of the Old Testament, okay? Sometimes it's translated kindness, Sometimes it's translated faithfulness. Sometimes it's translated as love. Sometimes it's translated as loyalty. But it is the key word for the covenant. What it speaks of is the covenant relationship between God and his people. In other words, when it says God is a God of hesed or a God of compassion or a God of love and kindness, what it means is God is a God who keeps his promises. He's made this relationship, and he lives out this relationship to the fullest of his commitments, okay? So I would suggest to you here that the idea of love-kindness is especially significant for us because it's talking about being faithful to the covenant relationships of our life. First and foremost with God. We've already talked about that reciprocity. God loves, so we love in return. And this is what John says. This is love, not that we loved God first, but God so loved us, therefore we love God, right? It's that responsive reciprocity that we were talking about. However, the idea here of loving covenant faithfulness, if you'll allow me the term, means to recognize what you owe the people around you because of the relationship you're in with them. In other words, if you are a person who loves kindness, according to this, it means that you will recognize your mother and father as mother and father and treat them as such. It means you will see your brothers and sisters or the citizens of your nation and you will recognize the relationship you have with them and seek to fulfill it faithfully. It's a broad relational term. And again, we can go back to the beginning of Genesis to see this. When Cain kills Abel and God comes and asks him where Abel is, how does he answer? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes. In fact, that's the irony of the whole story. Cain doesn't kill a stranger. He kills his flesh and blood, his very brother. And so it's no surprising, you can read this on your own time because I know I'm waxing eloquent here, But in Deuteronomy 15, it's no surprising when God says that they need to care for the poor. The repeated word that shows up over and over again in chapter 15 is brother. When your brother has a need, when your brother, when your brother, right? He emphasizes the relationship. What I'm suggesting to you is knowing that God has fulfilled the promises of his relationship with us makes us faithful to the promises we owe to those around us. 
It changes the way that we care for those who are in our family. It changes the way that we care for those who are in our church body. It changes the way we care for those who are in our city. It changes the way we care for those who are part of our nation. It changes the way we care for those who are a part of humanity as a whole. It recognizes those relationships. Okay. And so there's a sense here of pursuing shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word that we translate peace. But if you read for a long time in the Old Testament, you'll discover that it doesn't just mean a time where there is no war. It means a time of community flourishing. It means a time where communities work in a way where, uh, where justice is done, where they work in a way where needs are met, where there is uh, you know, the proper balance of work and rest and the proper experience of life as it was meant to be. In other words, it's a picture of what God will do at the end of Revelation when the city of God comes and people dwell together with their God in harmony. Okay. Love kindness is directly related to that. It's cultivating those relationships today. And then the last one, walk humbly with your God. Humility is one of those funny traits that we, we feel compelled to honor, to recognize that it's good. And so what we envision here is somebody who's not too bold or brash or proud or visible or these types of things, but this isn't the word humble in Hebrew, not the normal word that we find throughout the Bible. A better word for this verse would be carefully. My son Logan here probably doesn't remember this, but one of the first words I tried to teach him was the word circumspectly. And it's just because I thought it was funny. It, I think bok choy was on the list too. These, these are the vocabulary that I started with. But circumspectly is a word that means to walk with your eyes open, seeing what's in front of you, avoiding traps and snares and the many lifts in the sidewalk from the roots of our trees, right? Circumspectly means to walk carefully. And it's a word that in older New Testaments is still used for how we're to walk as Christians. Look in Ephesians chapter.